Welcome to the Next Door Neighbors podcast, a podcast where we talk about all things neighborly. Here are your hosts, Alex and Irina Mazukin. On my first of all, thanks for doing this. Um, I, hmm. you are, and I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you like a, a modified version uh, how Andrew Schultz introduced you because I, I think the way he did it is probably the most appropriate way to introduce you is you have to be known as my. Uh, the smartest friend I have, right? And I'm really honored to to call you a friend because uh, you've been on the podcast before in the earlier stages, but you're the one person in this world who uh, I could always come to when I'm freaking out about the algorithm or ideas, or I have an idea in my head that I was inspired by, and I can run it by you. And you've already given that idea some thought, and you've already accumulated some thoughts. And so on the podcast, we have once again, Ben Ueda in the flesh, uh, one of my favorite people, uh, and uh, I'm honored to have you back up on here. Well, thank you. It's good to be back on, and yeah, it's funny. Like, it's always weird when someone introduces you that way. One, you know, the the, the immediate thing that comes to mind is to self-deprecate and be like, "Oh, you need smarter friends," and and like joke around. But no, it's a it's a really thoughtful thing to to say. It certainly doesn't feel that way. From my end, I just feel like I'm in this community that we're all in of kind of makers, woodworkers, DIYers. They're all kind of sharing their experiences online. And, you know, I the thing I think why I push back on that description is that it puts the expectation when someone gets described that way, it makes it when you meet someone new, they're like, okay, now like say something smart. It's the same way if someone's like, if I introduce one of my comedian friends, it's like, this guy's so funny. And you're sitting down at dinner and it's like a thoughtful conversation about a non-funny topic. It's not like they're, the expectation can be for them to make me laugh, make me laugh, clown, right? Uh, so uh, I think where, and I so appreciate that description, but I think where it comes from is just uh, really enjoying engaging with the community looking at what the sort of common wisdom is, thinking about how I can add to the kind of discourse within this this community and bring something from my previous backgrounds to this kind of new endeavor. So I think that's where it's mostly coming from. We all have like people that we think are kind of like geniuses in this space, right? Like Izzy Swan is such a brilliant kind of engineer, hacker, making weird just the craziest jigs, making spheres out of a table saw. And, you know, we kind of think of him as this kind of like mad scientist, kind of brilliant guy in the woodworking space. But really what he's doing is bringing just a lot of kind of mid-level to lower tier sort of engineering and uh, industrial design principles into a space that's not used to seeing them. And I think that's where uh, what is seen as sort of innovative in our in, for what we do as a living is really just taking low tier expertise from other fields and introducing them to a wider audience. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I completely agree with Izzy um, and what he does and, and Jimmy's perspective. But when I say somebody is smart, I don't think I, I approach it through the projects that they're creating, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if somebody's having the idea of to integrate LED lights into floating shelves, I don't go like, oh, they're really smart that they thought of that. 
to me, I can when I, I, I think that's a, a very uh, innovative person. I think that's a very creative person. That's full of ideas um, of projects. But I think when I say somebody like the smartest person I know is, I think one thing that I particularly struggle with is slowing down and process information and apply like, like a, the sociological uh, application to it. So whenever there's an idea, whether the idea is what are we going to be doing 10 years from today or the idea is should we do these virtual builds, you've already processed that idea. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you already have an approach of or two cents of what you think uh, most likely will happen from that versus I think the majority of the people like myself, unfortunately, like it's a game of chess or, or, or billiards where people like myself, we only think of the next step. We're not thinking the fourth step after this. And I feel like people mm. like you have given it that thought. Yeah, but that doesn't always serve you well, right? Like, I mean, we've both done, here's like a great analogy to sort of compare it that ties it back into the core of what we do. When someone pitches you a new smart version of a product where you've been mostly happy with the previous non-smart version, what's your like initial reaction? Is it like, amazing or is it like a little bit of skepticism it's it's a it's it's not skepticism but more of like i don't know what the word is but i'm like why you know like i'm like it's already right. there so why why do it i think we could figure out how let's figure out how to get you know clean drinking water out of salt water like i why are we trying to reinvent <laughs> the electric smart why, light bulb why do we need wi-fi in a refrigerator now it may <laughs> come to a point where look I'm open to it, right? And I may or may not be working with a company that has Wi-Fi in the refrigerator. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But my, when I hear something like that, okay, I get that it's smarter. It has more processing power than the previous refrigerator. But what I'm curious about is whether or not the smartness in this case is the right tool for the application of keeping food well-preserved, right? Mm -hmm. So. Intelligence is interesting. I think of it more as like a tool or just like raw processing power in a computer. But we all look at like specs on like a new camera and it might be, oh, this has a more powerful processor. But if it's not calibrated and balanced correctly, it could have all the megapixels in the world and still take a crappier photo than your iPhone does, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that's how I kind of think about uh, intelligence. I've met a lot of really smart people the smartest people I know are not the most successful or the happiest. And I think that's a lot of times the case of like the refrigerator, the, these new Wi-Fi enabled refrigerators might be more intelligent, they have more processing power and more capabilities than the old one, but the majority of that new capability might be targeted in an area with minimal returns. Mm. So I think the advantage that I have is mostly working in an analog world of design, construction, DIY projects, home improvement, and just bringing a little bit of a more kind of high-end design background to that. But I filter out a lot of the things from my previous professions of architecture and design, kind of thinking the same way. I kind of want a refrigerator that's, you know, it's kind of like filtering out the Wi-Fi kind of versions of that and maybe just being like, hey, Maybe just an occasional alert if your temperature or your power's out and something's spoiling. Right. Do you feel like, and this is not that we're going to create a whole new topic conversation about Wi-Fi in general and the idea of that smart just means it's connected to Wi-Fi. 
Do you think people are now, because there's so many things like light bulbs, thermostats, um, your table lamps, there's everything now has uh, some form of connection to Wi-Fi and they're calling it pitching in as smart. And one thing that me particularly is now I'm more irritated with those products because they're they don't make your life easier. They make your life more complicated because yes, your your internet's slow at home, so now you have to restart your internet. Half the things need to have the Wi-Fi password be plugged back into it. Uh, it's an application that you're not really using. Like, like okay, you can control the temperature regulation of your refrigerator from your phone. Great. How often are you really changing that temperature, right? It's you have zero and you have 30. Right. So this, this is actually like, like the problem isn't adding the individual intelligence or capabilities to the light bulb or to the refrigerator. The problem is these things are kind of done with the pursuit of a particular brand trying to dominate a idea of a platform. And then that these platforms don't often play well to each other. Like I think we would be all a lot more satisfied with our smart home tech if there was only one winner right now. And so this is kind of this interesting thing where we don't necessarily want to encourage monopolies and things like that, but things are a lot more cohesive when there's kind of a singular point dictating the rules of the platform and then everything's plugging into that. So I, I experienced this frustration when it comes to like home entertainment. And, you know, it's like, have you ever been to like an Airbnb and you're like, okay, kind of crash, but let's let's watch a little Netflix. And you turn on their TV and you realize you don't remember your Netflix <laughs> passwords and all those kind of things. And Facts. it's weird to kind of log in. And you, I, so many times just out of laziness or just not willing to do the setup or worried that I'll leave my sort of logins into somebody else's home, I just sort of, you know, pull out the laptop and watch that. And there's so many cases where the single ability of my laptop to have like better storage for passwords and quicker access to retrieve passwords when I don't remember them, I end up using that as more of an entertainment hub than I do my way superior television or projector screens. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's not necessarily an indictment on the smartness of any one piece of technology. It's more in the kind of tribal warfare of multiple interfaces trying to sort of achieve platform supremacy. Um, and I think that's the part where the consumer gets really frustrated. And it's very difficult for brands to think that way. They so think in terms of their product suite and it's like when a brand does a photo shoot, they don't want any logos of any other brands showing. And that inherently kind of makes the photo shoot look more like stock photo photography or it looks like an advertisement. It's totally rational that they would want to do that, but it creates an effect that looks like it's speaking to a very limited type of rationale. It doesn't look like an authentic kind of Instagram post in the wild. Um, the same thing happens, I think, often when brands think of their, their product suites. They think of them working in their own ecosystem in this idealized world where somebody buys all Samsung or all LG or all uh, Sony, right? And that's not that realistic. You know, we might have a Mac computer, but we have a Samsung TV and then we have an LG projector. And it's tricky when those things don't all play well. And I think we're seeing, even as capabilities are getting more advanced, a lot of friction between all those things. I'm seeing, <clears throat> One, you're talking about uh, platform supremacy, which it's a very racist term in today's time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the ability the, of Amazon 
integrating a lot of these smart products that have nothing related to each other, but being able to connect it to your Alexa. So one of the features that I don't use, but it's constantly being pitched to me through my Alexa stuff is the ability to connect my Samsung TV in one room and Samsung TV in the other room and my ring doorbell and have it all working harmoniously. So I could say, Alexa, turn on the TV, but the re which works, right? It actually does work. But the reality is, is I'm more likely to go and get my remote and turn the TV on, right? Like it's it's a, right. it's an added step because then I'll say, Alexa, turn on the TV, but then I still need to go find my remote. So you didn't really solve anything for me. You just made another bell and whistle that might uh, appeal to somebody and might make somebody choose that product over another product but it still didn't solve a problem in my life. Yeah, it's funny. Like, it's one of the things I think that Power Tools actually does get right. Like, we both work with Ryobi a lot, but if you go to Home Depot and you have a Ryobi jigsaw, you know it's gonna work with the, the, the other sort of T-slot jigsaw blades that might be from a different brand or the Diablo one, which is sort of serving them. Things are more kind of, I guess standards standardized in terms of like the arbor size for different tools and stuff like that if it if it wasn't it would be way more of a nightmare and you could see why a brand would want to push for more kind of platform specific devices right especially if they were going to vertically integrate and sell you the saw blades the sandpaper and stuff like that but i think the overall industry benefits when brands are a little bit more hands-off and they let some sort of interplay between their different tools. Now, no one's gotten to the point where that happens in terms of the most important part of any sort of power tool now, which is batteries. Um, but it is interesting when you see sort of generic battery knockoffs for a particular brand on Amazon. In fact, our, our boy, Mike from Modern Builds, is going to be doing some side-by-side -side testing of the generic versions versus the, the brand versions for some of these tool batteries. Interesting. Is he going to ruffle some cages or some feathers? I don't think he's signed to any like major power tool company right now. He's doing sort of one-off deals here and there. So I think he's trying uh, to take advantage of, of that moment in time to, yeah. to kind of test out the, the, the things. And I've tested that out with like camera batteries before with like my old Canon Rebel that I used to use for a lot of video content. And the off-brand batteries were about like... 30 to 40 percent worse than the the canon ones but they were about 30 to 40 percent cheaper too so it kind of seemed like you were getting what you paid for um so ultimately i ended up sticking with the the brand batteries just because if you know something goes wrong with the camera you lose uh all those hours of work so uh it was kind of important to pay a little extra for it uh, what did you feel was, did you have a theory of why they were about 30% less? I mean, if they're using the same, what is it, lead that's inside of them, right? To store the battery power or lithium ion, sorry, it's lithium ion. And then within that it's, it's lead, right? I'm not sure. I'm guessing that, well, one, they're selling at a cheaper price point. And it's not like I think the major power tool companies are, have so little price pressure that they're over inflating for their brand value. Mm -hmm. My thought is probably... Uh, has a lot to do with the level of quality control and uh, that comes when you have a brand that you've invested in, right? So if you're just creating products that's generic and has no brand to it, that's just going onto an Amazon listing, you, you might engineer the design or pick the specs that are equal to what you're knocking off, but you're not gonna probably do the same testing and get rid of the duds out of the batch 
right? Mm. So if you're a brand like Ryobi or DeWalt or Milwaukee, and you're trusting on people to invest more and more into your platform, you have an incentive to not ship a defective battery. So let's say, you know, 2% of the batteries that come off a manufacturing line are defective. If you're an off-brand company that not trying to build a brand loyalty is just trying to sell to people that are looking for the lowest price in a generic thing that fits into that platform. Yeah, we'd rather make the 2% of sales rather than worry about somebody actually associating it back to us because there's, there's no accountability. You're anonymous, basically. If you're one of the brand power tools, uh, you're more worried about safety for one because you, you're more of a, a stationary target for lawsuits if you do something uh, that. So there's a higher incentive for a kind of uh, safety checking and checking durability. But two, you wanna build a relationship with those customers, right? Like you don't just wanna sell them one circular saw and then they're done. You wanna sell them the circular saw and then you wanna sell them the orbital sander, the drills, the belt sander, the palm routers, all with the same battery platform and really build the lifelong value of that customer. So I think that, you know, sure there might be some, there might be some corner cutting on the actual specs that go into the build, but where I see these things more, and that's what people on the internet always say, oh yeah, it's cheap stuff or it's built over here, or they cut corners or it's all plastic. There's a lot of money that goes into these things that has nothing to do with the material parts. It might just be shipping a lower percentage of things that come off the factory line. That's one of the things we've seen in sort of investing in manufacturing companies, whether it be companies like Hook or uh, Semi-Exact. When you have a production line where you're making something at scale, a certain percentage of those things, no matter how good you are, will have flaws. The question is, and this is less about manufacturing skill, although you can use that skill to kind of reduce that percentage, it's also a judgment of deciding what level of sort of inspection you allow those sort of flaws to get through to the, the customer. Mm -hmm. And the more stringent you are there, the more it raises your cost, um, but the more it is sort of important for building out that sort of brand consistency. Is there is 2% kind of the magic number? Because, I mean, you've worked with many of companies that you're part of uh, the, the production line. Um, is 2% kind of like the going number? It's, I think for like the actual like assembling part, it somewhere be between like sort of five to 2%. I think for things that are more temperature dependent, like finishing, it can be a lot higher, if, especially if there's like seasonal kind of weather shifts mm -hmm. in, the, in the facility. Um, We've seen it with like spray coatings and powder coatings. It can, that number can be a little bit higher. Um, but just even in my own kind of making, like if I make 10 things, all 10 of them aren't equally good. No, no. If, you know, like uh, they might be, you know, the ones right before lunchtime or at the end of the day, it start to start to slack off in quality a little bit uh, as you get hungry or tired. But, you know, we're, we're not super consistent. Mm. Yeah, that's. I mean, you start seeing that with the. I mean, the how pri the price point goes up on a product, and brand awareness goes up on a product. You you have to, I, you have to almost assume that that's only because there's a stricter stricter quality regulation that's in place to prevent that uh, two to five percent to just like escape, right? Because that two to five percent is enough to somebody having a bad experience and say, "I'm never gonna buy." To me, that was a prime example. I bought a. Uh, Let's see here. It was, uh, I've always been buying Samsung TVs and I bought a, 
Oh, creep. Crap. I forgot what the, the name of the – it's your classic, like, Walmart brand that's, like, the cheapest. Oh, like Vizio Viz, or something? Viz, that's exactly yeah. what it is. I bought a Vizio, and I was, like, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, it's a Sony product, right? Like, they're, like, the cheaper version. Yeah. And then I bought it, came home from Costco, put it on my wall, and it – like, the apps didn't work. They just did not work. So, naturally, I'm thinking, well, something on my end. Then I return it, and I get the one that's, like, three levels – three tiers higher in within the Vizio company. And that one worked just fine. So you, I, I, looking back in this conversation, I'm assuming that it's part of the the quality assurance line that they were like, well, this is <laughs> we we can cut corners here. That's where we save the money. Yeah, it's 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 really funny that way. Like, um, it's tricky for. It's it's interesting too because I talk to a lot of woodworkers and makers, you know, sort of people in our space. And they're always looking to kind of scale up in some way. And whether it be hiring more people and starting to sell more products online, so building out a bigger production facility with more laborers and more people working underneath them. When they do that, almost when after they start doing that, and I talk to them about how it's going, it is at least 90% of the time they complain about their employees' attention to detail or quality. Yes. Right? Like, they're just like, they just don't care about the work the same way I did. And like, they just kind of go through the motions and doing that. And there's obvious sort of compensation reasons why that that is. There's not sort of aspirational connection. There isn't that alignment of interest. The same thing sort of happens when I talk to people on the sort of content side of business, which, you know, me and you are more, more involved with. I got this editor, he's really great, I love that it's taken off my thing, but he just doesn't quite do things always exactly the way I want, or um, it's hard to get the turnaround really fast, or it's hard to synchronize his utilization to my sort of utilization. It's like, I'm building in the field for like three straight days, and then when I upload the footage, it takes him four days, but then I'm kind of waiting for that to do the final Mm -hmm. sort of post-processing stuff that I have to do, voiceover, stuff like that. So. Yeah, all, all these things are, are really hard. Like, and I'm sort of interested to hear about sort of, you know, what your sort of plans are next. Since the last time we talked, uh, your channels have, have experienced some really significant growth. You're doing a, you're building at a really rapid rate with like the home improvement projects, expanding that into sort of real estate uh, holdings for yourself as well, which I think is a really smart thing from the business side. But what are the things that you're sort of experiencing as you kind of scale up both the real estate the size of the projects the frequency of the projects and the 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 content as an output what are kind of the things that you're feeling are like getting really tough or some of the things are getting lost in the in the the growth well it's funny you say that or ask that because uh whatever i'm gonna say it's all based off the conversations that i've had with you right because that's what i'm saying like i've I've, you're so nice to always pick up the phone and let me run things by you but i remember you asked me we're on a phone this last summer and you're like uh uh what's the most stressful part of your job now that you're like scaling up you're hiring people to help you uh, speed up the process of, of production of content and I'm like, I have anxiety now of thinking of how to keep them busy. And right. like, that's, let's say that's the first part. So like, okay, we're, we're increasing the, 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 the number of content that we're putting out in, in, in even for multiple platforms. I would wake up on Mondays and I have this like mini panic attack of like, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go into work, which I'm working from my house. So there's no like going into work. Um, 
and uh, I don't know what to do. And so then I kind of stopped myself like, wait, you're you're in charge of everything. So if you want to like not work today, it's on you. But you definitely don't want to make that decision. It's a very, you know, immature, uh, poor decision to make. So then I slow myself down. I go, okay, we'll plan things out. So then I realized I hated planning for other people how to be productive uh, that day. I started actually respecting the roles of project managers even more after that, because now you just say where we're going and then they have to basically essentially babysit everybody else to make sure they're all planned for. so as I expanded in that part of my business, I've also ended up pulling back a little bit. So I realized I don't like having people uh, build in the same area as me because, well, now the issue that we're having is like, well, we, I only have one uh, videographer. I have one person running and gunning a camera. And if they're running between my the room that I'm building and in the garage because that person's maybe sanding another project, well, now the the level of stress, I'm burning out my the guys that are working with me, right? <laughs> so now like Kyle's like running back and forth of the house and and he's he's awesome at it, but still like how long can you sustain that? You know, like I don't want to lose a good guy who's excellent at his job because I'm stretching him too thin. So now I have to think of, do I need to get another videographer if we're going to continue shooting two projects at once? And seeing what YouTube has been doing and what platforms are like, are, are, are doing better than others, it was almost like there's no use for it. Like there's no point to scale up that much. So I took your advice again from two years ago that we spoke and you said when one platform slows down or the momentum slows down on one platform or one side of the business, you put your bandwidth to the other side of it. And I feel like by expanding towards real estate, um, purchasing properties, purchasing land, um, and being able to double dip for creating content, um, it's allowing for me to feel like I'm not just stagnant, but I am moving around even though this other platform is not performing as well as it used to for me. It's so funny. Like what, what you're describing is completely relatable. And I think this is, happens with not just people in our industry, but in a wide variety of industries. And it's this kind of, I don't want to call it a natural progression, but this this pendulum swing from, so people will have like a nine to five or like a full-time job where they're working from someone else. And if you look at like what's happening in that situation is the money's normally pretty stable and good. There's not a lot of sort of aspirational personal development qualities associated. So it might not be the most fun, but it also probably isn't necessarily the most stressful job. And people often when they're in sort of their nine to five and or they're sort of, you know, the the version of their career that they studied for, there's this kind of complacency but security. And you're like, what if I, you know, I kind of want to start my own thing or 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 really explore or test myself or pursue these other ambitious or these these interests that will make my day-to-day way that I sustain myself financially a lot more engaging and fun. So they go off and they give it a shot. And you know, if they're one of the lucky ones, it starts to work and this is something we both experience. And that's that's really kind of the sweet spot is when you realize, oh, this experiment that was a, I hope this work is actually working. Then what happens is all those things that aren't there that were really exhilarating, the lack of security, the lack of predictability, you start trying to build those things in and there are some people that I think Chris Salamone, our buddy, Four Eyes Furniture, is really good at 
he has such a zen-like approach and every time I talk to him, he's always just like calm, enjoying the woodworking, not too up, not too down. Ah, oh, this video did great, cool. This video didn't do good, cool. He's just like, he's in the flow of it. So I think he's actually such a great role model in terms of really designing your career for lifestyle enjoyment mm -hmm. and still achieving really like really impressive growth over the years. Um, but I definitely have found myself multiple times in not just this latest incarnation of my career, but earlier in like the architecture and tech side of things where I would build stability, be making good money. And then I'm like, oh, I kind of want to do something a little more challenging. Mm -hmm. And then I do that for two years. And I'm like, this is stressful and really exciting, but I need to build some security into it. And then I end up sort of recreating mm -hmm. the same the same thing that I, that I had left, right? And with my sort of, you know, uh, tech company that I created before I got into sort of creating content and after architecture, it definitely happened. I sort of left architecture because I thought it was kind of too predictable of a slog. But as we scaled up the company and hired more people, the tail started to wag the dog where it's like, I thought that growth was really important because the growth would lead to more money, more money leads to more options and more options led to more freedom. But what I didn't factor in was as I hired more people, I had more responsibilities. So even as I had more options, I had more responsibilities and the responsibilities were actually outpacing the growth of opportunity. And so what I've tried to do with this sort of latest arc, uh, incarnation of my career with sort of content is, you know, I'm one of the ones that re always resisted hiring out a really big team. I've never wanted to hire a team that I couldn't keep on my payroll even if we stopped working completely for, for years and years and years. I like the idea of a really long runway. Um, so the team's small, which means we can't capitalize on every single opportunity that comes across our door. We have to say no to a lot of sponsorship deals just because we don't have capacity. So we're definitely sacrificing near-term economic growth. But what I'm trying to do, and probably not always doing perfectly, but I think from a happiness standpoint, which is, sort of intangible there is this kind of nice option of of only scaling a little bit not scaling to the maximum yeah. not putting the pedal all the way down to the metal um and we see this in other things too with fitness when i was working out in my 20s everything was like pushing every set to fail right when you're running it's trying to beat your personal best everything was pushing that the very boundaries of your own physical limitations that's a great way to see progress. It also though, fact, improves your likelihood of having injuries. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm in my sort of early 40s, I, I don't wanna do anything to the point of fail. Everything's about sort of, you know, 60 to 70% of the, the sort of weight that I could do. And everything is not about pushing, it's about consistency and longevity. So I think with, with, with businesses, these same sort of approaches is, the maximalized case isn't always the best, right? Yeah, um, it's definitely definitely a New Year's resolution for me. Um, and you know, yes, with kids, and they're only going to be little for that long, so don't be too busy that you're going to miss them in these stages of life. But just like the question I was asking myself, this is like internal struggle. I'm constantly wrestling: is am I doing enough, right? 
Am I leaving money on the table? Am I not like I've always said, like I've always wanted to create, like invent something, uh, a product and advertise it to my audience and it'd be fantastic. Am I doing enough? Like, am I doing a podcast? Am I doing, am I leveraging Facebook? Am I leveraging YouTube? Am I leveraging TikTok? Am I doing enough? And then the other aspect, the other tug of war is I'm, t I'm always so busy. So what's the point? Right. So what's the point of the money if I don't have time to go and enjoy the the freedoms that come with that money? Right. The ability to take time off and like like you have a place in California and a place on the East Coast, it, the ability to to say, I'm going to go there for some time and work from there or be there and I'm going to come back and I'm going to go to you know Mexico. If, like you have that kind of freedom. And I've realized that I have to be like I have to set up my life where my production is monitoring my gauges and seeing where I'm at. And as, as I'm getting close to that red line too long of, a, of time or seeing if the engine's overheating, then I need to pump the brakes and, and take some time off between a video and go do the things that I enjoy doing to remind myself why I'm doing all these things. It's the ability to have this freedom to enjoy this kind of lifestyle. It's the, the part I struggle with is separating the decision-making from actually focusing on whether or not it's a problem of my own abilities to enjoy things, right? Mm -hmm. So the so often when I plan things, I'm planning them with like, oh, if I should I be doing more content on TikTok, more short form video content, T uh, TikTok and Instagram Reels, or should I invest more time into long, thoughtful sort of individual podcast or talking to the camera type more pundit type expertise related content. And then I start thinking, well, you know, if I did this amount of this and this amount of this and I cut a few hours here and then added those hours here. Now, I guess the working premise of all this kind of like mental puzzle piecing together in our mind to figure out the best sort of strategy for our business and career growth is the assumption that that will make life better. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the weakest point in that chain those things are really great when you're in survival mode of like, hey, I'm not quite making enough money with this current thing, but it's making some money and like I really got to push hard, go pedal to the metal to try to get this thing to where I'm in the, the black, not in the red. That's the time to sort of pull out all the stops to doing that. If you're already making good money, you kind of want to look at like the maximalized upside and then sort of question whether or not you have enough kind of blank space to kind of really figure these things out and also try to figure out if whether or not it's actually a flaw of your own ability to be kind of satisfied with the things you've already created for yourself. Mm -hmm. There's that exercise that I'm certainly not the, in the top 1000 people to have sort of mentioned, but it's like, it's that question of asking yourself, uh, if I told myself to, if where you're at now, you told yourself two years ago, that's where you're gonna be, would you be ecstatic? I remember talking to you a few yeah, years ago. Yeah. If you knew that you were going to get to this part, flexing on the Porsche, you know, <laughs> all tatted up, doing bigger and better things, bigger audience. YouTube page you, these tattoos. Yeah, my success you, in life. <laughs> you would have been very pleased with that opportunity. Yes. Now, so the question is, are you enjoying it as much as you thought you would? Like, yes, I am. But I think the only reason I am is because uh, you get to see the transparency through uh, the opportunities with your kids. 
as almost a mirror right. of like what you're doing. Like I remember right. uh, somebody said this, uh, they said, cause everything you own or any experience you ever have, you get used to it, right? You get a bigger right. house, you get no- Everything normalizes. Everything normalizes. There's, there's a law of something, I forgot what it's called, but it's the- uh, Diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns that whatever you have, whether you got a new car, it's a new car to you, but then after six months, it's you just get used to it. The law of diminishing returns, it sometimes will rob you of your joy, but I think it's different when when you're kind of like when you have the the kids to look at and the experiences that they're sharing, you kind of go and like I, it, it, everything is worth it because I'm seeing you enjoy your life. And so the this this person said this one time. He said, "The law of diminishing return is is so true, but the one thing that money, like a, when you truly feel financial freedom, is is sometimes a lot more simpler than in, than it looks on paper." Like he says to me. It's the ability to go to a restaurant and not being worried about what I order, whether or not I could pay for that tab. And I thought that was such a simple thing, right? Because to more, most people, it's going to be like that financial success and freedom is a, a big house and a fancy car and two vacations a year and private school for the kids and whatever have you. But then the reality is, is like everything you get used to it, but then those experiences. So like you'll slave, constantly be working and busy. And then finally you go with great company and great conversations to a nice restaurant and you're enjoying good wine and good cocktails and a great meal and you're in this like fantastic intimate setting and you walk out of it and every time we walk out of those settings i always tell my my wife i was like i want to work for the rest of my life so i can continue to experience this the ability to just go and be with good people have good laughs good conversations and it, not worry about the meal that i just ordered and that's is the one thing that I'm trying to work to never lose. Like I, I don't care if I lose the Porsche. I don't care if I lose the house. Right. I could always scale down to the next thing. But is I never want to lose that freedom to be able to sit in that environment. So th th I love that you said that. So if we apply the laws of diminishing returns is if I go to a great restaurant, the there is an enjoyment in the first time of like wow being surprised and delighted of how excellent it is and you're saying oh what why is this you know what how did they make this right and they're oh they put this weird oil from this part of the world in and it's fantastic mm -hmm. and then the next time you go you might sort of develop a routine and developing a routine with sort of a favorite place it can also be really enjoyable where you and your friends or co-workers or significant others you're like oh we have this thing like every tuesday night we go to our favorite spot we get that and there's like this kind of weekly thing that you're looking and enjoying too the sometimes that enjoyment is from the routine part and then other times it's from the newness part mm -hmm. and i think that's one of when i'm trying to look at how i'm scheduling in things into my you know we're in the beginning of the year beginning of 2022 and i was thinking about am i gonna do resolutions this year and when i thought back about what kind of work i actually enjoy where and it's often the part where i'm testing out something new where there's a novelty. The reason why people don't like sanding is because it's so repetitive and they know exactly what's happening. But there is a certain satisfaction about finishing the sanding and then putting the oil on it and really seeing the, the piece pop. That part almost never gets old, whereas like the middle of the sanding part gets really old. And I find that I'm actually the most sort of engaged and excited in sort of doing the new part. And this is sort of the question for sort of the enjoyment of business versus the efficiency of business. It would make the most sense for me monetarily to say, 
look at my past 400 projects that I've done. These ones do the best, they do the best this time of year, and just do more and more variations and versions of that. Build sort of saturation around these search terms, proves the SEO for all of them, expand, expand, expand. But I often, my enjoyment of building things that are only minimally different is less than building something that involves totally different tools or totally different materials. So those are the things that now I'm kind of doing intentionally. And so I don't want to think of it as a strictly sacrificial thing on the business side and money side, just so I have a little more novelty in the day-to-day -day work. So I'll try to be somewhat, I'll acknowledge I'm not going to be 100% efficient for the sake of enjoying my day-to-day -day life. When I walk into the workshop, I don't want to feel like, oh, I got a whole day of things that I exactly know where it's going to happen and it's going to be dirty and I'm going to be really tired. My back's going to be sore at the end of it. And the end, I'm going to have a result that I've seen before. Mm -hmm. That's not the most inspiring thing for me personally. So I'll try to mix in like, what are some new ideas that I can sort of test and do it that'll keep me sort of intellectually engaged, that'll make me want to work those extra two hours in the shop that are still within some sort of new sort of business opportunity. So again, it's not maximizing it, but it's also not foregoing it completely and going like full kind of artist asshole where you're like, oh, I just don't care about money. And meanwhile, they always do, right? Um, so it's acknowledging that I'm not gonna be strictly monetized, mm -hmm. um, but it's also acknowledging that that is still really important and I'm gonna make some concessions here so that I have that enjoyment and know that that enjoyment will probably lead to more motivation, more motivation will lead to harder work and I'll probably make up some of that value that I lost on paper. Let me ask you this, what's your process? What's your creative process? Do you have a, a list on your iPhone under notes of like, these are the projects, you'll get an inspiration, you're like, oh, that'd be kind of cool project and you just add it to the list and then as you're planning out your 2022 calendar, you'll be like, well, it'd be kind of cool to try that and then once you, once you do that, do you set time aside to say, how do I make that to be a unique, uh, new, somewhat scary approach that I've never done, but it gives me satisfaction? Do you set aside that kind of time for it? It's more like, so the, 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 the ideas when they go into sort of production are very physical, right? But they, they might start in the thought process way earlier than that. So I've been thinking a lot about how interior design styles have sort of changed during the pandemic. One, I think in general, people have just become a lot more individualistic. They realize that their home is more for them, less than this kind of showcase of their social economic status. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing a slight inclination towards less perfectly curated, you know, holistic home environments where everything is like modern farmhouse or everything is mid-century modern or everything is like, you know, sort of pop culture color. And we're starting to see these mixes of things all together. Um, and I've also been seeing a lot of trends for things that are high end, but made out of synthetic materials. And that was something that seemed really hard to imagine five to 10 years ago. Like if it was, it was harder for me to imagine expensive plastic furniture five to 10 years ago. But something, I don't know if it's the sort of NFT kind of world sort of merging in and this kind of pop art becoming more economically viable. But, you know, so I might see a loose trend that I, that I can't exactly put my finger on, but it just seems like people are more interested in transparency and etherealness and they're more tolerant of synthetic 
plastics and they're interested in uh, molecular gastronomy where the food isn't even food. It might just be a foam with flavor. Mm. None of these things I think are going to be the mainstream. But if I see a cohesive sort of movement across a broad swath of culture, I might think, huh, well then maybe I can power carve something out of plastic, not out of a tree stump, right? Mm. It might... I'll, I'll sort of look at culture broadly and try to see a few trends that are not perfect or not uh, these trends are not so I can predict the stock market and make smart investments. They're trends where I can kind of find a place for me to participate in what's going on in the world culturally. Hmm. So one example that I'm working on today is uh, <laughs> recycling glass. So. I've done a lot of concrete stuff. I've made a lot of silicone molds. I've done a little bit of epoxy work, but I was thinking about, okay, the trend side, I see transparency and translucency picking up sort of uh, interest as they apply to furniture. I see, we know that epoxy projects have popped off in our direct sort of business. I think Logan Paul just did an epoxy yeah. project that got like a 20 million views or apparently, something crazy. Apparently he hit up our boy John Malecki for advice on it. Hell yeah. yeah. Um, shout out to John. Yeah. I miss that guy. Yeah, good guy. Um, so, Assholes of human being, uh, but a great... great yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll see those kind of like broad trends and then I'll think, okay, what, what am I interested in and where's the intersection? It's like, well, I kind of like recycling things. Um, I like using glass for molds sometimes for other projects, but then I break them and I have all this, this pile of broken glass. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of casting projects. And then I'll also think about the drawbacks of epoxy. Epoxy is really expensive. Mm -hmm. If you think about it per cubic inch, oh, it's, it's, it's astronomical. It's extraordinarily expensive. I mean, I think that's one of the kind of the this reasons why you see so much is that there's huge consumer interest for it. And there's also a lot of companies that are really good at supplying content creators like us with free product. So we're doing, you know, it's not uncommon to see, you know, 500 to a thousand dollar epoxy pours on on youtube um and so i was thinking like well, okay these are all things that are bouncing around in my head where's the intersection and so i was thinking well let me make a reusable mold because that's one of the parts i don't like with epoxy projects is demolding so if i'm going to invest time into making a really good silicone rubber mold that i can reuse over and over What's the type of piece? Okay, it'll be a kind of a simple kind of side table, a coffee table kind of piece. And then I'll think like uh, epoxy's downside is the sort of cost. So how do I reduce the cost of that? Maybe I use an aggregate. Oh, that's where the crushed glass. So right now I'm crushing up a bunch of glass bottles that I cleaned. Mm. I'll be making kind of a transparent gravel out of those. And I'll pack the molds full of that, that broken glass and then pour the epoxy over the top. So it's almost like a transparent concrete with epoxy as being the sort of cement holding it all together. But I think I'll be able to reduce the amount of epoxy that I need by about 30 to 50%, somewhere around there. And the glass will probably add an interesting sort of element. If you sort of broke green glass bottles versus white and then kind of layered it in, yeah. the epoxy is gonna go all around it. The epoxy pours in really thin and then, so then in thinking, it was like, okay, now this is kind of pushing the limits of a DIY project, which is a criticism I get on my channel all the time. It's like, <laughs> okay, that's, that's cool, but you just use a CNC machine, silicone molds, uh, welding, and 
as I've experienced all these kind of maker adventures, my skill set hasn't gotten to be an expert in any one thing, but it's pretty broad. I can do a little bit of everything. Right. So, and then in framing this video, I'll frame it as, I think there's a lot of people out there that have design ideas that don't know without a massive amount of capital or investment how to turn those ideas into a product line. And I'm like, oh, if you were able to make the silicone molds, you could then make this table design out of concrete. You could make it out of this glass and resin. And you could probably make it out of some sort of compressed sawdust thing with like a wood resin in there as well. So now we have, with this one set of molds, I have three different versions of the same product without even adding color into the mix. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, maybe this will be a video about a designer creating their first product line at home without any investment. That's cool. And then suddenly if I'm putting, you know, $500 into the silicone molds, um, you know, using a lot of different complex sort of making things, to spend $2,000 to create the infrastructure to make a coffee table is pretty stupid, yeah. right? Does not work in a DIY thing. But to take an idea that you have as a designer and create a whole ability to produce your own product line in your home in a very scalable and easy way, $2,000 is a great deal. Yeah, it is. Let me ask you this, because you, you, you're you a unique person in our space because you uh, you do a lot of public speaking, or at least you know whether it's Clubhouse or you've done TED Talks and uh, a couple other engagements, and you, you really have a place in sustainability in that kind of uh, uh, community of creating sustainable either houses or building things out of sustainable material. But then as a DIYer or a, a creator of ideas, you're also experimenting with builds that include, like you were talking about plastics and whatnot. Do you get any backlash from that, from like the like from the opposing community? Mostly from dumb people. Um, <laughs> and that just haven't really taken the time to think about what sustainability is. It's this idea. So sustainability is something that's made me both more hopeful and optimistic but also more cynical so it's simply acknowledging the idea that if we continue to live the way we're doing right now our kids probably won't have more options they might have less options in terms of the changes sort of being inflicted upon them so that's a very scary outlook that you know per portrays a lot of dystopian sort of ideas that being said a lot of things still are getting way better and it's hard to sort of foresee how sort of technology plays a role in this. So the question is, you can make an ex you can make a justifiable excuse for almost any type of actions, externalities on the environment. You can also completely demonize any activity, even solar panels. You can find a way to talk about how well you know the embodied energy and the sort of material toxicity, and we have to use copper wires and copper mining. Oh my God, have you seen what copper mining did to this one mountainside in this part of the world? There's always externality. So, I think of sustainability as more as a a general sort of sense of humility that should be applied liberally to sort of human actions. There are always unintended consequences to anything we do. Those consequences get bigger and bigger as we scale up. We're scaling up in terms of populations. We're seeing some sort of points of, of slowed growth, but not to the point of negative growth, which I think it couldn't itself become uh, sort of a problem. And so for me, sustainability is much more about the humility and the humbleness on how we sort of approach things. 
And it doesn't mean that we, it's not about having all the right answers. And I find we've seen a lot of the limits of public discourse for complex topics. Uh, epidemiology, immunology, vaccines, their intersections with uh, for-profit businesses that intersect then with governments. It's a pretty complicated topic. You just discussed, and, you just basically touched on the last three podcasts on Rogan. <laughs> right. It's really complicated. And for me, like sustainability is equally, if not more complicated, it's saying that there's going to be this inherent drive for humans to protect the people around them, their family and those. A lot of their assumptions about the best way to do that are going to be based on the way they grew up. Both adversely and sort of positively, meaning that we learn from what our parents did poorly and we do the opposite and we learn from what our parents did, did well and we incorporate that as family tradition. It's really hard to expect people that are shaped by that kind of immediate local things and have that strong emotional connection to a particular well of life to completely subvert that for a broad scale of information that all has to be analyzed and leveled into an Excel spreadsheet. I have sort of made a rule for myself where is I don't entertain discussions about probability with anyone that isn't willing to build a spreadsheet to sort of actually calculate them. Because mm. what it's it's really it's easy to do basic addition and subtraction and maybe multiplication in your head. It's really hard when you talk about percentages of risk on multiple factors. You have to build a model. You have to build some simulation. And then when you build that simulation, there's going to be a, minim, uh, a whole bunch of variables to sort of pick holes into it. Mm -hmm. So with the questions of sustainability is the, the criticisms I find not that exciting are like, oh, I, I saw this uh, NPR article saying that concrete is bad. Now, the fact that we use uh, coal-fired furnaces to burn the sort of you know fly ash, which we then use as sort of critical sort of component into concrete. That is not good. That produces a lot of carbon and stuff like that. Now it's too far in my mind to say that that makes concrete bad. For me, that is a much more simple sort of question. It says like, what other heat alternatives can we use this? Well, luckily there's people investing in solar-powered furnaces, right? And I've built one of those here in Joshua Tree, not for firing concrete, but even with just glass and a black plywood box, we were able to get this, make a solar oven that got to about 250 degrees to melt plastic down, so we didn't have to use that. That's cool. So, but what about, would there, would there be toxic fumes that are emitting from that to go into the atmosphere? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So then, There'll be toxic fumes just about, but those are all things that you just, you acknowledge uh -huh. and you try to improve. But it's really hard to sort of sit in the lab and get everything right the first time. Right. You kind of need iterations and testing. So for me, it's much more, the more productive question isn't saying like, you can't use concrete. And these same people will watch sort of a video where I use epoxy and not comment anything. Mm -hmm. But it's because they saw that one piece of media which was accurately reported with limited context. Right. So I don't wanna call fake news, that's a stupid article, NPR sucks. No, it was it was a great article. It was valid, right. it, it, it framed that. But it wasn't present the solution that that article was presenting wasn't that concrete is an immoral material to utilize. Right, right. What it means is we should be thoughtful about how we use it and we should look to improve it. So I think a great example of this is, uh, remember compact fluorescent light bulbs? 
compact fluorescent light bulbs. Uh, n what are they? They were like the curly Q ones. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the in incandescents, so, right? Like they they existed in this very specific point of time, mm -hmm. right? Before we went to all LEDs, but kind of during the transition from incandescents. Yeah. So they were more energy efficient than incandescent bulbs. They were way more toxic than both LEDs and those. There's a lot of chemicals inside those kind of fluorescent tubes. And they're a great example, I think, of a flawed technology just based on a limited sort of contextual understanding that a lot of money was invested into creating these compact fluorescent light bulbs, which I think are, you know, not great, um, even though they used way less electricity than incandescents. I think the smarter move back then would have been to sort of say, hey, let's not go full hog on this. There's too many limitations to this. Let's wait until we just focus on LEDs and then we'll make the transition more cleanly. Now that's very easy to say in retrospect, but that's one of the sort of complications I think of, of sustainability or epidemiology or any of these sort of worldwide topics. If you're having that conversation individual to individual, and you're not acknowledging the sort of limitations of your own particular viewpoint, you're going to probably come across as a kind of an arrogant prick that's underinformed, simply because the topic that you're discussing reaches into so many parts of the world. Right. Ben, I, this is the part that I don't get. Like the ideas that you're processing, the they're well thought of. They're they're very considerate. You've given a lot of uh, thought, and you are constantly innovating something new uh, out of an idea, maybe a different approach. How is it that we're still using the 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 class category of DIYer in this, right? Because that's one thing <laughs> I'm always being the comments I'm getting is like, there's, there's, no, there's no way this guy's like a general contractor. Like, how how is this DIY? My application is I did it myself. You know, that's my DIY. How is it that you're still using that tag of DIYer when you're talking about innovation of of an alternative source of energy or? I I think. It's a really interesting phenomenon that you sort of described. If you look at my first videos, which were I think like over eight years ago, they were very simple. There's like a drill and like a wine bottle and I'm using like a glass cutter, cutting it by hand. They were projects that only involved like one or two power tools at the most, maybe three. And that was like the first few years. The skill set really built. So the this isn't unique to what we do too. If you look at some of these like cooking channels on YouTube or on Instagram, like these people are are full on professional chefs, even if they never went to culinary school because they've spent the last 10 years incentivized by the internet sort of ability to monetize content to get better and better at their craft in a really competitive environment. So the skill sets building really fast when you add this sort of economic incentive to get better at it. This is not just true in these fields. You watch something like the UFC, the quality of the fighters is getting if you look, watch like the first 20 UFCs and then watch the last 20, the skill level is extraordinarily different. That happened in a relatively short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So when you add consistent sort of economic incentive, people get good at things really, really fast and they're gonna change the notion of what a at-home cook is or what a DIYer is. The tools are also getting more sophisticated. So. I still don't really think of like a CNC as being a DIY tool yet, but I think in the next 10 years, we might be a lot closer to that. We certainly won't be farther away from it. Doesn't mean there will be one in every home, 
But is there eventually a time where I think a CNC machine will be more common than a table saw? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. Hmm, interesting. What um, do you have any thoughts on NFTs and our application or contribute our, our way of leveraging it in our space? There's this assumption with anything digital that it's easy and unearned, right? There's people that think, oh, you know, if you just if you're a contractor or you're a really good woodworker, you can start a YouTube channel. This guy did it and your work's just as good as his. You'll do it. There's this assumption that the actual manipulation of the marketplace isn't a real skill set. And we don't really think of curation or uh, building a strong retail brand as like these sort of em empirically studyable kind of skill sets. NFTs, people will make a lot of money on them, but there'll be people that understand that marketplace and then invested a lot of time into sort of curating audience uh, the same way so if we go to like if, if me and you were in sort of new york and we went to like one of the you know not like the the moma or the guggenheim but we went to like a private art gallery and we saw this work on the wall some of it might be kind of abstract and it's selling for twenty thousand dollars and you might look at it or i might look at it and be like i can make that mm -hmm. we probably write that we can make that we're probably wrong in that we could sell it for that mm -hmm. and it took that person was selected out of this tiered system of art discovery. They had conversations with people. The people that sort of uh, run the gallery have very limited space to kind of curate this work. So they were really picking carefully from thousands of artists, the few artists that they feel really uh, embody what they're trying to communicate artistically. So while we may have been able to make the physical thing, the ability to kind of get that situated and then sold for that price isn't of itself a skill set that me or you don't have. And that's kind of the thing that people have to acknowledge with NFTs is I could make a JPEG. I have an audience. I could put that JPEG into other people. But if I haven't invested a lot of time or communication resources into explaining how this is part of a future that I'm really invested in and not just a cash grab, I think it'll come across as a little hollow and empty. So yes, N NFTs are a viable technology and idea that's going to continue to exist. And I think there's a lot of cool things that we can do with them. But like anything else, if it comes across as a cash grab or as like a quick sort of pump and dump or this sort of, yeah. hey, this is the trend. I heard somebody else made a bunch of money on this, so I'm gonna jump in on this. It's something you brought up to me in like our first conversations. You were kind of like just getting started on YouTube and you're kind of looking at like, okay, so Bob from I Like to Make Stuff does this, Brad from Fix This Build This does this, you do this, Mike does this, why don't I just do this, 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 and this? And it's like, there's, it's really easy to plot that out, right? To say like, oh, I'm gonna take this part from what Ben does and this part from what Mike does and this part from what like Bob from I Like to Make Stuff does. I'm never worried about someone copying me because it's like, they can't copy my work, right? Like they still have to do, even knowing, right. even copying the outcome, they still have to create the process. And that's really, really hard to do. And the devil is often in the details. So with any of these things, I'm, the world's gonna continue to change really rapidly. And if anything, it's gonna get, it's gonna change faster and faster and faster. Nothing is that easy if it's, like you'll, Mike came to me and was like, hey, you know, this 
if we would have bought Shibu Inu coin at this point, <laughs> we would have been worth like, you know, $10 million. And so I'm like, you're almost right. But here's the problem, right? If you bought, like, where, if you were buying that coin at the time where $1,000 could become $10 million, the minute you bought that 1000 coins, you diluted that pool. So if like, if I bought my $1,000 worth and then Mike bought his $1,000, 20 minutes after I bought mine, his $1,000 would have gotten less because to get in that early, you cause so much disruption even with a small amount of money in. So this idea that everybody could have gotten rich on NFTs is the lie. It doesn't mean that NFTs, and just because everyone can't get rich on them, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they're not a viable thing either. So we'll continue to see them, and but we'll see them existing in a way where people that really invest in communicating value and brand mm -hmm. to a certain community will do really well. And people that try to just say, hey, someone else made money on this. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's another example. Supreme, you're aware of that kind of brand? Yeah. They sell things, hoodies, stuff like that for a large amount of money, even though the material value is low. Does that mean you can just pick a word, pick a color, and then sell sweatshirts for that amount right. with your sort of brand? Right, right. Probably not, right? right? A lot of investment went to create the perception of that value, and that in and of itself is a skill set. Now, my only question with NFTs is, is seeing them as like a digital art, right? So we have your parents, uh, or even the way you and I grew up, where we had physical books, right? Um, the future generation, they're getting further and further away from physical books, because now you can listen to a book on Audible, you can have an ebook on your Kindle. Um, and our generation is not really the generation, I mean, very, with a select few, you know, artistic people, they don't really have physical things in their minimalistic apartment. They don't really have, here's a, a you know, I don't know enough artists, but we're just gonna show the big ones, obviously, but like, here's a, Mon you know, Mona Lisa, here's a Van Gogh. Like, they don't have that kind of tangible connection to things, uh, everything is online. So I guess my big question is, if NFTs are essentially gonna become like digital art that you would display either on your technology, whether you're gonna be balls deep into the metaverse or maybe uh, a digital uh, illustration. For example, we have a, one of those Samsung uh, picture frame TVs, right? So you can have any kind of digital image when the TV is off being displayed there. Do you feel like that, do you think not as a cash grab, but do you think that as community evolves and society evolves that it's there's a place for us to 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 utilize our work in it so if i was to do an nft project here's the way i would sort of approach it uh i'm most interested in the idea of using an nft to create a token around a unit of my time so we've both gone to WorkbenchCon, right and when you go to WorkbenchCon, it's great and but I always feel bad for the people that are inherently a little bit more shy. That just like to see someone that they admire whose work that they find really interesting and they wanna go ask some questions, but they kinda of don't wanna interrupt because they might be talking to somebody else. So there's always these kind of people that hover around the fringes a little bit. And I've, I'm always trying to be appreciative of those people because it means that they're also polite enough to not try to interrupt to just get their 15 minutes of FaceTime with you. So what that tells me is that there's uh, one, it tells me that WorkbenchCon is always exhausting because you really want to accommodate all the people that want to, you know, ask you a question or pick your brain or show or show you something that you might be inspired by that they've done, um, and all of those things happen on the regular. So I was thinking about how to create access to myself 
on a more sort of one-to-one or small group methodology that doesn't feel like a uh, an unending charitable endeavor, right? Meaning that if I opened myself up to sort of consulting slots and had like a, you know, sort of a, a desk, um, there would be more demand for it than I would have time to sort of fulfill that. And it would end up becoming a detriment on the other things I'm trying to do from a business standpoint. So I also don't want to just create like, hey, here's my business model for, you know, consulting and then charge, you know, an extraordinary amount of money per hour and basically be like a hotline to do it. The reason why I don't like that is that putting an hourly rate on your time, it's important as a practice, but it's also dangerous as it feel like as like a psychological study because your your time is limited and you're putting a set cap financially to it. So if I was to kind of utilize what NFTs do, what I would do is, is I would write a terms of service saying that uh, if you buy this NFT, you're able to redeem it for a one hour or 30 minute phone call with me. I might make a 30 minute one, I might make a one hour one. You just have to give me two days heads up and some degree of flexible scheduling, and but you can redeem it pretty much anytime you want, just within those sort of parameters in case I'm traveling or don't have internet access. Then what I would do is, it was at only issue four or five of those. Um, and then I would reveal them first to like a small group of sort of in the community so that people maybe with not a lot of money would have a chance to sort of get them at the sort of market rate, we call it like 50 bucks, something low. But it would also let them kind of speculate on their sort of positioning. So if I made these available to a certain tier of my Instagram followers that were all doing sort of woodworkings and makers at a sort of extraordinary price, and then a month later they are able to be put on an open market and get auctioned off, one, it allows the people that maybe don't have the financial resources but have been the kind of ride or die fans from day one to kind of get in early, invest, and then flip them. You can also write it into these kind of smart contracts that we share in the increased sale. So if that 30 minute NFT that I sold for $50 then gets resold for 500 because I'm not issuing that many, I'm only creating you know two hours of my consulting time available a month, and so the marketplace is sort of demanding it, um, that would be an interesting way. Because what I like about it, it's not just saying like, it's less sort of a uh, whorish to be sort of like, any, anywhere, anytime, you can pay you know $300 and get an hour of my time. I much like the idea of thinking of like, my time is limited, mm-hmm. it is valuable, I'm only gonna wanna do these kind of consulting gigs for a few hours a month. So let me acknowledge that and let the marketplace sort of dictate that and let some people speculate and buy my time and flip it to other people that are willing to pay more for it and make money in the process. And like, let's create some of my uh, time value as a speculative asset that's in limited supply. Well, let me ask you this. I thought the whole idea of an NFT is that you physically own ownership of this thing, right? So if you have an NFT of Michael Jordan doing this famous slam dunk, then you have one of 1,000 minted things of digital ownerships of that thing that you could display for everybody. But if it's like a one-time, one-hour consultation hangout with you, isn't it essentially just nothing more than like It's a- not about the artifact. The artifact is less important because think about it this way, right? Like the, the mechanism of transference of the artifact is probably the most innovative and interesting part. These marketplaces are much more interesting. So think about if YouTube didn't exist and the internet didn't exist mm-hmm. 
and we ha- we made our videos onto DVDs and then put them at Blockbuster, right? Like, it's a t- like, it's still our video is still our video, but if you change the exchange methodology, it changes a lot of things, not just one thing. Mm-hmm. So, the ability to kind of track the purchase and create scarcity is what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the interesting part is that if it's sold, I get notified and I get sort of told because I minted it into the blockchain. So I'm constantly know where this one sort of ticket I made to redeem from my time is going. That nobody's, and, but nobody's redeeming though, right? It's still circulating for the, it's like a ticket of your time of one time, but then once it's used, right. that thing no longer exists, right? That, then I can burn, then I can create another one, uh, right? So that, that would be like the part of like the sort of terms of service. So it's something I might do in the future. I've started doing more of these kind of consulting gigs. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting is there's like networks like the GLG network and they basically pay you an extraordinarily high uh, hourly rate. So mine somewhere ranges between three and $500 an hour. They don't use you for very many hours, but they basically they record all your expertise through these series of interviews saying like, okay, you know about sustainability, you know about digital fabrication, you know about uh, digital media. They'll sort of figure out your areas of expertise and then they'll deal with like sort of corporate sort of clients that need to try to find somebody with a specific type of expertise that they don't have to run some ideas by you. So they kind of source this massive network of experts and then they, you know, if you're uh, Lowe's or Home Depot and you want to figure out the future of how direct-to-commerce sort of startups are going to potentially disrupt your business, you can drop, you know, $1,000 for a two-hour conversation with someone that knows what they're talking about. Um, So it was really seeing how these kind of private networks benefit from your sort of life experiences in a very lucrative, but again, a way that sort of deals with you in a very expendable way. that's what sort of made me sort of think about trying to do something that's a little more available to sort of public markets. You know, the other thing that I think will be interesting that eventually will happen with NFTs. Did you follow the the group that was trying to buy the the Constitution of the United yeah, States I, or one of like I, the thirteenth copies? I heard of them. Yeah, I haven't followed them, but yeah. So that showed both the potential and the limitations of these kind of systems because basically they created a a DAO which allows it's almost like a type of transparent escrow system where people can sort of, they can assign their crypto money to this endeavor, but it's sort of all built in where you don't have to like send money and then trust that the people managing that money actually do what they're gonna say with it. You can see where the money's going in real time through the blockchain. It's that sort of transparency. But with that transparency of documenting every step comes a lot of friction. It's slow, it uses a ton of energy because it's really showing the work at every stage it's not abstracting into a more efficient or compressed process. So with that comes a lot of sort of friction and gas fees and stuff like that. So basically like credit card fees, but instead of like 5% or whatever, it's like 30%. Um, so I think that there's an op- uh, an option like this to create sort of a mechanism for kind of some semi-utopian homestead type developments. And I think there'll be a lot of these people that sort of try these things and there'll be a lot of them that kind of fail spectacularly. And I think there might be a couple that kind of work in some sort of sustainable manner. Meaning that, let's say we all decide, all of our sort of maker friends, all of the the Makes Giving crew saying like, hey, let's buy 
500 acres in a really beautiful part of the world and let's divvy it all up. Someone's going to do something like that. With, and I think it'll probably be like a community of sort of influencers will probably be the first to do it is they'll create some sort of crypto type financial infrastructure where everyone sort of buys in and contributes into the sort of inherent tokens and then that sort of those resources get deployed for the sort of physical assets and the ownership is under this kind of thing that type of structure i think will be interesting because there'll be a certain amount of people that trust everything written into code more than they trust everything written into contracts and if you think about it i understand codes about as well as i understand written con <laughs> contracts and if I was to invest in understanding one better, it would probably be more logical to focus on codes than me going to law school. Right. Like one is probably a little bit more logically and inherently and flexible and useful. So if you just take it that from that standpoint, 10 years from now, will more people know how to code than have a detailed understanding of laws? Then if that's the case, the mechanism for enacting Tran uh, transactions through code will probably be more prevalent than it is today. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what you're saying is there's no room for us to create the lazy DIY ape and sell it as an NFT. Um, well, and I, I mean, I'm joking about it, obviously, but the only thing that I could see that we could, and, and, and I'm not, I, I got to be clear, I'm not trying to approach this from like, let's get quick quick rich, let's get rich quick scheme. I'm not going from that. What I'm kind of seeing is, if 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 uh, blockchain and NFTs and the metaverse is the future, how do we carve out our spot in it that 20 years from today where we don't kick ourselves and go, oh man, if only we did that and allowed the com like not to make a killing, but just to be part of the thing at the earlier stages. I'm kind of, you know, as as you're talking about uh, your version of NFT, I'm kind of thinking, well, we all as YouTubers have a handful of videos, you know. Some have within 10 kind of, right? Some have five, some have one, some have 10 YouTube videos that are in the millions of views. So which obviously shows popularity of, of that place and time. Well, it, would there be a digital way for us to create like a Facebook version, uh, a time-lapse thing of that for you to have a digital, uh, you know, representation that you could buy? And I only sold, let's say a thousand of them, but so it's, it's a right. piece of history, I guess. If anything's possible, I would say the likelihood it would be extraordinarily low in the sense that in order to get a high value for that, so you would have to spend more time to create that value than you would just time to create value under your existing sort of business infrastructures. Mm -hmm. I think the way to not miss out on the market is to buy the underlying asset. So I, when NFTs were first popping in like end of 2019, 2020, I was looking into them really hard. And I was uh, even trying to get Brett from Skull and Space to, to invest in it. I think his work lends itself to kind of collectible stuff much more than my work does. Um, so at that time, I kind of looked at it and I did that full sort of you know, self-study band. Okay, how, how do I get in part of this trend? Because I saw that trend as being a real thing. Mm -hmm. I looked at it and I couldn't come up with a strategy, and this is probably due to my own limitations, that felt authentic and not exploitive relative to my audience. So instead, I was like, I still don't want to miss out on something. Yeah. So I just bought the underlying assets. I invested in Ethereum, I invested more in Bitcoin, and invested in Solana. Now, if, I, if those are the underpinnings and the structure to it, I can be involved and invested in the trend of NFTs without 
risking my time to sort of promote something that I don't really feel has an inherent value. I, we're very, you've done merch, right? And merch makes money, but it's not like, it's really hard to cross over past a percentage of your total audience. Like less than 10% of your total audience has bought your merch. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair to say. So yes, you could have a great idea for merch, but if it's derivative, meaning that if it's words on a t-shirt or words on a hat, your ability to kind of transcend that fraction of your audience is very unlikely. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had an idea for like a new cut of jeans or a new tool where it eventually can reach a market, not only that's a fraction of your total audience, but actually a multiplier of your total audience, okay, invest time into that. Mm. So that's how I would look at it with NFTs is, one, the amount of our audience, if if less than 10% of our audience would buy our t-shirt, everyone wears t-shirts, right? But a smaller fraction of them has crypto wallets at this point. So like your conversion rate on your audience would be less and less and less and less, way smaller than it would be with merch. And you probably are not going to create significant value to people outside of your audience just on the artifact that you're creating or the promise of its scarcity. So those would be the reasons why if you were interested in not missing out on the space, my suggestion would be investing in the underlying assets, not investing your super valuable time right at the point where you're really starting to make really good money because your business is so mature. Diversification into the creation of them would probably be less advantageous unless you had a singularly great idea. The same way I would say making more t-shirts and more hoodies, it's a good business idea. It has other benefits of creating sort of a, a connection with the fans and so there's value outside of the monetary aspects alone. But I would say spending 40 hours on merch that wasn't completely original or didn't have custom uh, patterns that you actually own as IP that you could eventually flip um, would be less valuable than you saying, hey, let's do another rental property and let's build out the team and create more content. Facts. Facts. And this is why Benuita is the smartest friend I have. Okay. This is why (laughs) you've given a thought, man. I love it. I love it. Um, This is great, man. Um, I, I love your insight on all these things. It's it blows my mind that you've actually given these things thought that you actually uh, carve out time in your schedule to process this information because a lot of people like myself, we tend to come up with the idea of what we think or have an opinion as somebody asks us. And so we have to kind of almost think to ourselves, how what, how do I feel about it? What do I think the NFT world looks like? And uh, I'm glad people like you exist in this world, man. Um, so uh, tell people, I don't wanna take any more of your time. Um, tell people what you're working on and where they can find you. I think like the biggest new project is, and this is something I'll be talking about at WorkbenchCon is, over the last few years, I've been really thinking of how do I turn my audience into equity, right? Like how do I take this business I have, which is very lucrative, super fun, very blessed to be a part of it, of making something, showing that thing to a lot of people, getting paid really handsomely for the process. But there's always this pressure, okay, you're done. What are you making next week? Mm -hmm. There's a treadmill type aspect to what we do as sort of constant producers. It's really hard to finish a project and then sit down and just be like, ta-da. It's (laughs) like, oh, gotta get the next video ready, right? So I've been trying to think as I've been doing this longer, longer is, 
how do we create something that more continually perpetuates income and value? And at the same time, how do I get more value out of my ability to sort of put eyeballs onto interesting things in the design and making world? So the way I sort of looked at it is one of my favorite videos I've ever, or favorite stories that was enabled by the internet was the guy that he started with a paperclip, traded it for a cigarette lighter on eBay, traded it for a stapler, and he worked his way all the way up from a paperclip to like a car yeah. or then to a house. Yeah. So I've been thinking about the same thing with like my creative work is the first thing I made was a vase and then like a stool and then tables, kitchen renovations, eventually built a whole container house. So what's the step after a house? What is 10 times or 100 times bigger than a house? If a house is 100 times bigger than a vase, what's 100 times? So uh, for the last year and a half, about 30 to 40% of my time has been going towards uh, development and I'm developing a 65 room uh, shipping container hotel out here in Joshua Tree uh, secured all the investments and just recently uh, we got through the sort of zoning permits which in California is extraordinarily difficult so it's by far the the biggest kind of project that we've done it's literally 60 times bigger than the shipping container house which was the biggest project previously and that's how I'm kind of thinking about growth is I don't like for the shipping container house series, which did really well, 24 million people I think watched it. That was the work of like six people. So if I make something 60 times bigger than that, I don't wanna manage 60 times more people. So I've been really thinking of how do I scale up my reach without scaling up my responsibilities. I still just wanna have it be like me and my core team at Maker Ranch, I want it, like the the maximum amount of people I'm responsible for that work with me. I want them to all fit around one small table where we can have lunch and be really good friends, yeah. right? Like that—that's joy and lifestyle perfection to me. Is like everyone I eat with and break bread with and work with on a daily basis. I trust basically with everything. Like they have my passwords. They can do that. They're they're family, uh, literally and figuratively. So, but I still want to scale my ambitions. So this hotel project has been a really interesting example of that where uh, I use my ability to kind of get eyeballs onto things to create value and to create security that this hotel will have excellent marketing behind it in addition to really good design. I leverage my ability to sort of present things and understand the holistic view of sustainability to help with the permitting process. I'm the one that did all the presentations to the city commissioners and all those things to get the approval. There's a video of it on my uh, Instagram. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. So it's taking the things that I've sort of learned and scaling up my ability by sort of partnering and collaborating with people that are experts into financing this type of construction. Hiring contractors that are experts at doing this, hiring engineers that are experts at doing these things. So. I'm not the head of the show, I'm one of the heads of the show, me with my business partner, Adam. And it's kind of a really interesting experiment where we're trying to, I'm trying to see is like, can I take what I've created and scale up my reach and impact without scaling up my responsibilities? And that this will be a fun experiment that plays out over the next two to three years. And if you follow me on Instagram at Benjamin Ueda, uh, you can see it sort of play out. Awesome, man. Hey, dude, this is incredible. You're a wealth of information and appreciate you coming on here. 
Anytime, anytime. I was, I was getting a little, getting a little jealous. I saw you had our boy Mike from Modern Bills on. I was like, wait, he's two times. I know. Where's my, I know. It's like watching like Saturday Night Live. He's like, you know, one host. That guy's been a host like five times. Mike came with some fire, dude. We got in some conspiracy theories, our thoughts on the vaccines. We came. It was a uh, un uh, unrestricted man. It was, uh, it was wild. No, we liked it. You know. One of the things I love about this community is that every other ancillary political, social viewpoint is held, and uh, yeah, everyone gets along really well. Yeah, yeah, we're all, we're all respectful, respectful towards each other. I think that's the part is because we all have to see each other, right? Because if we didn't, we we would be assholes on you know Twitter, right? But like the fact that we, we see each other, we have to be social about it. There's also it's so much easier to give someone the benefit of the doubt when you know that they work really hard to have what they have. Yeah. Like, like there's something about, because we know how much work goes into what we do, that when you see someone else doing it, even if you disagree with them on a multitude of things, you know exactly what goes into that. Yeah. And so there's an inherent appreciation, I think, for that, uh, that commiseration of struggle and effort. Yeah. Or as you would say, sweat and courage. Yeah, well, you know, we're all in the trenches, and so we, we appreciate yeah. somebody else grinding it away. Yes. All right, right. <laughs> Always great talking to you. Say hi to the family, and hopefully uh, we'll see you soon at one of these get-togethers. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot, Ben. Bye.